Hi, welcome back to Stand Up 24. My name is Alex. I am going to be the wonderful host for today. I'm accompanied yet again with Andrew Hassler and Zane Atencio. Today we're going to dive into the first of hopefully what is many podcasts. Hopefully you have gone back and listened to our intro so you know us a little bit, but I'm sure you get to know us a little bit more. First disclaimer that I have to kind of say straight off the bat is the things that we discuss here are not necessarily anybody's policies, protocols, or procedures. If you're listening to it, it is more for knowledge base, so you can hopefully be the change in your system or force your pre-hospital coordinators, medical directors, or anybody else, even within your emergency rooms, to view things maybe a little bit different. Maybe we can make the overall change as we need to. Um, so again, adhere to your policies, procedures, local ways of treating patients, and what is actually approved. But keep in mind, hopefully, this will facilitate a bit of a change. The wonderful topic that Zane brought to us to really start with is, as the name of the podcast states, it is uh, Fona over Mona, or Fona is in, Mona is out. We know for many years we have... Uh, gone with ACLS algorithm and cardiac emergency treatments of just say Mona. You know, it's the greatest acronym that every medic and EMT can remember. So without further ado, I'm going to let Zane take over and lead us down this uh, dark rabbit hole. Thank you, Alex, for that wonderful introduction down the rabbit hole of Mona. All right. So to talk about Mona and what that is and how that kind of plays in, um, we have to talk about acute coronary syndrome in itself to begin with. So ACS. So what is that? We're talking about those emergencies, those patients that are having STEMIs or NSTEMIs. What does that mean? More acronyms, yay. So STEMIs, ST, elevation, MI, or myocardial infarction. So those are those patients with those EKG changes that we see consistent with the heart attack. Great. We can spot those. We can treat those. We know they need an intervention. Then we get those patients who have chest pain. You know, they're presenting like they're having a heart attack, but we're not seeing the EKG changes. So what do we do? We draw labs, we find out their cardiac enzymes are elevated, and we diagnose it as a non-STEMI or N-STEMI. Great. So what does this mean for us? So talking about Mona, we um, are all kind of in this algorithm of following the standing order that we all have. Pre-hospital, ER, you put an order set for it, whatever you need to do, and we just kind of follow that ever since I can remember. Um, so with that, you know, of course, You've got your patient. We follow that ACLS algorithm we were kind of talking about. So Mona, morphine, oxygen, nitrates, aspirin. So either of you want to kind of put in what what standing orders have you seen for chest pain? Let's just talk about what you've experienced with that. I mean, in all honesty, I think for most of my career, it's always been that. Yeah, it's out of sync, out of order, but we all know how it goes. We apply oxygen early. A lot of times way back in my starting day was, hey, 15 liters for everybody. We've kind of cut back that to maybe, hey, four liters, watch their SpO2. They're oxygenating well enough because if we want to get brainy, we understand free radicals and overabundance and oxygen in the bloodstream is not necessarily a great thing, but that's more for other podcasts uh, to talk about. But going down the line, we're talking, next you go 400 micrograms of nitro, and right before that, throwing a little bit of four baby aspirins to chew up if they can. And uh, ultimately, the big bad wolf that we are going to talk about is morphine. Two to four is needed, blood pressure pending, but that said goes with that wonderful nitro thing. I mean, standard of care for me for the past 17, 18 years that I've been in EMS. Andrew? Yeah, not much else to add to that. Uh, 
I remember early medic school, it was top Mona, and uh, that was sort of the standard of care for a while. Um, I know some departments, uh, some agencies are getting away from everyone gets that 15 liters non breather, but some places are still teaching that. Yeah, it's, ama it's, it's amazing how when we make one thing stick, what it takes to really break the cycle and prove it hard enough to be like, okay, you don't need to necessarily do this. Let's use free thinking and not follow this algorithm. Because the funniest part that I find about it is getting medics ready for national registry in medic class. And, you know, they're going through a quick cardiac, um, static cardiology, and they come up with something that looks like a STEMI, and the first things out of their mouth is Mona. And then they're just kind of go down the line. It's like, okay, we've ingrained it very well. Yep. But yeah, and I think it's I think it's easy for especially like kind of the cookbook providers out there to really grasp onto it because they might not have, you know, the best understanding of the, you know, pathophys behind it and they just stick with what's easy for them to remember, a simple, you know, phrase. It's Mona. a safe fallback. It's what you've been taught from day one in cardiac lectures in medic class. So it's 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 my safety net. I know where to fall to. Mona always catches me. She, <laughs> she's a faithful gal. But she's let's nice. talk about where, where did Mona even come from? Where was she born? Why do we use Mona? So again, Mona, morphine, oxygen, nitrates, aspirin. Again, not in that order because it just doesn't flow as good if you're going to say like Onom. So <laughs> we really have to, you know, Mona kind of works for us. But Mona itself actually came up in the 80s um, for ACS algorithms. Um, but that was back when we didn't have the use of fibrinolytics. So... It really didn't matter. We were just trying to treat it. We were doing what we can, managing their pain. We were thinking, you know, a little vasodilation, help bring some more perfusion to the heart. Now we're knowing that some of these things aren't necessarily true, and we'll kind of discuss that. Do not interrupt. Let me just point out something very interesting that you said there. So Mona was created in 1980s, and what kind of CPR did we do in 1980s? Five to one? Oh, yeah. So what does that tell you about the cycle of Mona and how much we've maybe neglected certain parts of understanding in it to change it? We've altered ACLS as far as CPR, BLS provider, but we never altered Mona. Right. We focus, we, and it's always starting with the basics. However, technically, this is sort of part of the basics. These are basic drugs. These are basic interventions. We've been doing them for so long, um, but we're barely getting people to do continuous chest compression. So maybe we need to start updating our drug algorithms as well, and a lot of people are, but again... Yeah, there's a lack somewhere in there. We missed something. Um, so just to get right into it, let's talk about the M in Mona, morphine. So morphine, um, talk about some presumptions with morphine. So why did we give morphine in the first place? The thought was um, that patients who didn't get this life-saving morphine um, were not treated fully per ACS and they were going to decline. Not true. Mortality is unaffected if they do not get morphine, just to start off with. Um, another one was morphine is indicated for those patients that are with that really high acuity ACS, so the pulmonary edema, um, the severe unrelenting chest pain, and if they don't get it, they're going to die. Also not true. Okay, another one was, well, maybe we shouldn't even give them analgesia at all. If we give them morphine, we're going to mask their chest pain. How are we going to know if we're treating them correctly? False. Has, that is not anything that's going to be indicated in what we're doing as far as emergency care. Um, with administration of morphine in itself, so some of the high points. One, with that administration, we're showing that it's increasing the infarct size. So whatever they've already got damaged, we give morphine, we just made that worse. And that has been proven in multiple studies. 
Um, there's also shown a higher mortality rate in those end STEMIs, remember those non-ST elevation MIs. So say we do get that patient pre-hospital in the ER, whatever, we use that standing order for ACS. They've got 10 out of 10 crushing chest pain, but no EKG changes. Okay, okay, I'm gonna give you some morphine, try to, you know, see if I can help with that. I give them the morphine and unbeknownst to me, I'm increasing their um, infarct size and increasing their mortality, but I can't see that. Another big thing with morphine is that um, the myth was, you know, well, if we use morphine, we're going to um, have a risk for hypotension, which is true because morphine does release histamine in the body that can drop your blood pressure. Definitely not something we want to do, especially with those inferior posterior MIs where we want to be very delicate with how we're managing their blood pressure. Um, however, one study showed, though, that between morphine and fentanyl, another pain medication that we'll kind of get into, um, morphine only caused hypotension in 5.1% of the patients, fentanyl close to 0%. So that that's a difference, but it's not very large if you really think about it. No, but I can completely understand the fact that if we are talking about loss of hemodynamic capability and ultimately we need oxygenated blood to be going through these coronary arteries that are blocked up, the idea behind it for a long time was nitro and morphine, yes, they dilate and you create more blood flow. At the same time, if you don't have a good enough push or blood pressure going to it anyway, you're creating a greater metabolic insufficiency, really, right. as far as maybe making it more hypoxic. Yeah, and that falls right into, like you said, with those inferior wall, posterior wall, those preload-dependent you know, MI patients. You know, As soon as you drop their pressure... You know, yeah, they're very vasodilated, but, you know, they've got no preload behind it to uh, even job. perfuse their coronaries. <laughs> yep. yeah. Yes. So to kind of circle back when I did introduce what we were talking about in the 80s, how we did not even have the use of fibrinolytics. So fibrinolytics, you know, that's when we're giving things like TPA or those anti-clotting um, factors. You know, we're giving Plavix, Berlinta, those kind of ACS algorithm things. We're not necessarily doing pre-hospital, but in hospital, or maybe you do carry them in your EMS system, um, and that's things you can give in part of your algorithm. What morphine does, however, though, is it decreases the effect of these drugs, and those are those P2Y12 inhibitors. Yay, fancy acronyms. I know, big fancy words. Yes, super fancy. Um, I sound so smart. But, so, those drugs, again, Plavix, Berlinta, we give morphine, the effects of those drugs, those life-saving drugs that are actually going to get them to intervention, to the cath lab where they need to go, are actually going to be inhibited by administering that morphine. And that's been proven with a very high confidence rate in multiple studies. So that's something we need to look at. So, okay, yeah, maybe it's not that bad with their blood pressure. Okay, yeah, I guess it kind of does increase this, do this. But the big goal is to get them to intervention. Um, so we're kind of decreasing their chances by taking away those inhibitors effect of those at least. Which considering that aspirin is one of the first things that will load up next to oxygen on a patient and making it ineffective. I mean, really the point of, of aspirin is you're not clot busting by any means. You're just preventing a, the clot from Correct. aggregating more. Correct. It's a platelet aggregator. But now we're adding in morphine and it's not helping out. Not only are you getting twofold, the histamine release, dilation, maybe decreasing preload, not making it better on top of it. You could be hindering any further great help that the hospital will probably rely on. I mean, it's one of those indirect patient advocacy treatment thoughts. Correct. You know, and, and it's not well known, so it's a great point to bring up. Yeah, and uh, if I remember correctly, we can check my source here later, but I remember reading some studies that said that aspirin is the only drug in Mona that's actually Correct. proven 
Correct. To do anything for our patients. You know, morphine's okay. Oxygen, sure. Nitro might help with a few different things, but morph, or excuse me, aspirin's the only one that's actually been proven to do something. Correct. And we will talk about the Thandamona, but yeah, the rest of these really are just us throwing the kitchen sink in this cookbook recipe that we've had. And yeah, we're going to adjust it from Mona to Fona, which we'll talk about here shortly. But again, there's only one thing that is actually really helping that we can prove time and time again that's being helpful for these patients. Big thing, of course, to remember also. So, okay, let's talk about what can we replace morphine with then. I don't want my patient to sit there in pain. That's going to, you know, piss off their heart more, essentially. You're sitting there clamped down because you're in so much crushing chest pain and I'm just going to stare at you for 40 minutes in the back of the ambulance, yeah, probably not a good idea. Well, ultimately, you know, catecholamine response in the body, what happens as soon as our heart rate goes up? Well, excuse me, let me back up for a second. Pain produces increasing blood pressure, potentially, but it also increases cardiac output through heart rate. So we're increasing the workload of the heart itself, and it's trying to sustain it while having a blockage, which means myocardial oxygen demand goes up tremendous amount so this heart is more shaped than it can actually be right and that's where the use of analgesia kind of came into this algorithm because we want to you know intervene on that um really their pain's not going to necessarily go away until they get that intervention but maybe that's an hour away maybe that's 30 minutes away maybe the they're in the hospital but the cath lab's another case more than likely involved with all of us is they're at a critical access hospital they're two hours by ground away from somewhere that does have a cath lab that can intervene on that heart attack. So now they've got four hour gap between before they even get that intervention. Biggest thing we've got to remember, uh, you know, there's some, so much of a focus on traumatic brain injuries and CVAs in the state of Arizona that I think we've almost kind of forgotten that um, heart is a muscle. It too, if it's deprived of oxygen, I mean, it's only the most important muscle in your body. If it's deprived of oxygen for way too long, the side effects or the long adverse lasting effects really are tremendous. It's amazing what it can do to the body because it can, anything from a posterior wall am I causing mitral valve regurge and everything else. Now you're living with perpetual CHF until that's further fixed, um, you know. It's a plethora of issues that can actually arise from it. And sometimes, like you said, Time is time of the is essence, right. and we have a tendency sometimes to be like, oh, you're just another chest pain. It's okay. Right. And we might not know until we get those, you know, those cardiac enzymes back, which, by the way, don't elevate often for, you know, a couple hours. So I draw that first troponin. It's negative. You know, they're still carrying on about their pain. Eh, okay, fine. I get that a second one back. Now it's elevated. Now I'm really behind the ball. I'm probably five, six hours behind because I've done that serial marker. But that's, again, for a later conversation. Um, So what are we going to replace morphine with? Fentanyl seems to be the new kind of drug of choice for this because it's just shown to be safer. It doesn't affect um, those inhibitors that we're trying to give to prevent further clotting within the body. Um, And it's not as vasoactive, so we're not going to drop their pressure necessarily unless you're slamming it into their IV, which you probably shouldn't be doing. Let's all take a break and just give it appropriately. Right. Get that that Narcan ready, too. (laughs) Right, right. So before you snow grandma all the way to next Christmas, maybe consider a little lighter dosing. I do think when it comes to that, though, we kind of lose track of time as we're pushing drugs. You know, you're like, one, two, 30 seconds. And And the whole thing. Yeah, yay. Take into consideration how many times have we actually 
stop and sit and look like, okay, is that 30 seconds? Exactly. Let's, like, you've got, you've got so many things, <laughs> depending how many providers you've got and how many hands you have to be working with. Sometimes can be too much, sometimes can be too little, but if you're sole provider or two provider and one is uh, the clinician, one is the technician, is the technician really looking at their watch? <laughs> you said give it. Yep, yep it's in. Uh, <laughs> so um, with that, though, of course, so fentanyl is great. That's kind of what we're trying to replace morphine with. However, I worked at an um, EMS system on ground where we didn't have fentanyl. All I had was morphine. So do I really get a choice? Am I going to withhold analgesia altogether? No. If morphine's all I have, that's all I've got. Am I going to be more judicious or careful with how much of that I'm administering? Yeah, I'm not going to give them all 20 I've got in the drug box, which would be aggressive to begin with. But I might do that lighter dosing, two milligrams, just to take the edge off, whatever I can do to get them calmer. Um, because sometimes that's all you got. So, again, you know, we have to consider those kind of things within the EMS system. And there's still plenty of systems out there that don't have fentanyl yet. Yeah. Right. There's, yeah, there's plenty of differences and variances within country, state, state, border to border. But uh, the same added part is we've got to remember biggest thing of any sedative, analgesic uh, drug that we should consider is you can always add more. It's hard to take away because especially when we talk about opioids and we have to take away, good luck getting any of it back to work for you. Uh, and you're only lucky if you have ketamine for that after the fact to get them to calm down a little bit. Um, so be of course, mindful with any drug minus the strong drugs that we can always talk about. Epi, one milligram code, yeah. I'm not going to add until they're better. <laughs> that, that, <laughs> titrate it is what to it pulse. Is. Uh. <laughs> titrate rock to pulse. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, no, um, but definitely with opioids and benzodiazepines, we should always be a little bit more on the cautious side because we never know how anybody's going to metabolize it anyway. Right. Whereas uh, most policies, protocols, and procedures will stay two to four. Some guys are like, oh, you're a 10 out of 10, you get four. And all of a sudden we have massive, even though they are not hypotensive and they're in the clear on the blood pressure, and now we have a bit of a hypotensive emergency because who knows if grandma was not dialyzed recently. Ge um, you know, geriatrics have a different uptake due to their pathophysiology changing over time, and now this 4 feels more like a 40, especially on the blood pressure. So let's be all mindful and always add more. Can't take away. Right. So yeah, that's kind of the big thing in Mona. So just talking about how can we replace that fentanyl would be the drug of choice if you have that option. And again, to recap, that is because the morphine, the largest thing that I see with that is it decreases the effect of those P2Y12 blah, blah, blah inhibitors, the plavix, the blint to those drugs that cardiology is going to give to help them through their PCI or, you know, their stenting um, while they try to fix the blockage within the heart. So that's a big deal. The next thing we can talk about is oxygen administration. So oxygen, we've been over-oxygenating people for many, 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 many years and for many other um, disease processes. So, the, you know, ACS isn't the only one, but we'll talk about what we're doing with that. So studies have shown that we were, you know, like Alex was saying, 15 liters on a breather, chest pain, boom. Okay, I passed registry, hooray. However, you know, and, you know, we've gotten better over the years. Okay, maybe just a couple liters nasal cannula. Great. Okay. But when do we actually need to do that? Okay, you're having chest pain. Okay, the thought is, oh, I'll give you oxygen, you know, I'll increase or decrease the demand on the heart. And eh, not necessarily true. So I slam four liters nasal cannula on you and say, okay, I'm being judicious. Sure. Um, but they show 
in a study over a year from mortality onset of an ACS event um, that there was actually no favorable outcome or changes with the administration of oxygen as long as their SATs were above 90% on room air. Yeah. So. 90, and I mean, on the safe side, I always say 93, 94, because we talk about the hemoglobin dissociation curve right. is the biggest factor. And again, going back to pathophysiology, we look at every patient, we kind of categorize them in, inside a protocol instead of actually thinking more critically of what is this patient actually inside this and that and the other thing right. um, to be on the safe side, 93, 94. I mean, right. even and, and the oxygen goal in here is 94, but down to 90%, they were shown to be yeah, okay. So they'll be fine. And of course, I personally would err on the side of 94. Um, but yeah, you it necessarily doesn't really affect them much. Um, what over-oxygenating does do, however, so why do I care? Um, over-oxygenating has shown to increase risk of recurrent MIs and increase risk of arrhythmias. What? I thought I gave oxygen to decrease PVCs yeah, and do this amazing. and that. But you got to remember, as lame as it is, it is a drug it, right. that we are administering to a patient. I mean, going, you're going from 21% to 75% oxygen administration just with a non-breather <laughs> on right. average. Yeah, well, and I've I've talked with some some various medics around you know about this like topic, and uh, I remember one person specifically bringing up uh, the patient's PaO2 level. You know, kind of mm -hmm. sounding intelligent, bringing up blood gases. You know, but then suddenly he, he mentions, you know, oh yeah, I got it, you know, max to 100. Like it's not a percentage; it's uh, a partial pressure. Mm -hmm. You can make it above 100. Yeah. You know, and the more oxygen we give people, you know, we can get them to a point where all their hemoglobin is, you know, full of oxygen, and then there's just Extra oxygen just building up. It's not really going anywhere. Not really going anywhere, yeah. Yep, definitely. You can fill the roller coaster. You can fill all the seats on it. But uh, if the weight's too much, it's not really going to do much for you. They've got to get off somewhere, right? Um, so, yeah, oxygen. So be judicious with it. Again, I would err on the side of just light nasal cannula, a little spritz, two liters. You know, if, uh, get to that goal of 94. Again, following your protocols. Um, so we've hit morphine, we've hit oxygen. So now we're to the nitrates, the end of oh, monophona. Here we the go. The bad N-word. Here we the go. The bad N-word, naughty, know, naughty. Is, this is going to be a very controversial, controversial portion of this talk, I think, because I think all three of us kind of have, within our own look at it, a different opinion, probably end up at the same place. but Yeah, but I, th I think our opinion's different based on kind of where we come from. We're, we're all flight care guys and have access to... Some extra toys that other people might not be familiar with. Right. So at a baseline, before we get into opinion, let's talk facts. So facts. Nitrates are shown to actually have no mortality benefit in ACS. What? But they need the nitro. It's going to help. Yeah. yeah. It might. It might. But it's not actually really shown to do anything with mortality. What um, the nitrates can be good for, of course, though, is helping with pain, which we'll kind of get into a little bit. And well, why is that? Why would nitrates help with pain? Anyone want to touch on that? I'm going to guess at the top of my head. I'm assuming with the coronary dilation, well, less work on the heart anyway, and you're reducing the preload, which means that whether it be right or left ventricle is not working as hard-moving blood volume around because you're dilating, dilating it out and preventing a greater volume to be there, which is helping out with the afterload. Correct. Yep. So... But again, it's not really shown to do anything for mortality. So do we need to keep doing it? It's probably not going to go away. I'm going to tell you right now, it's going to probably stay in protocol for a while. No mortality benefit, but also doesn't increase mortality either. So, okay, we're kind of at that. Six one way, half dozen the other. Right. I mean, really, right. So, you think you're doing something. Right. I'm helping. So 
Uh, idle, idle hands are a devil's playground. I need to be doing something. Right. So what else? What are your guys' opinions on nitrates? How do you feel about that? <laughs> it's a mixed bag. I mean, let's. I'll back the clock up and going back many years of being a ground medic, it was the go-to. As soon as I can get to my nitro, I was saving a life. I was dialing the coronaries to work around the clot, even though the clot is a clot. It's there. It's done. It's not You're not going to dilate out this garden hose and well, make it Well, not with better. that attitude. You can do <laughs> <laughs> I know. Piss poor attitude on that one. Um, so going in that, and then when I started flying, I think even in flight, it took actually quite a few years to get comfortable because we're not comfortable with the big old pump, one, B, I'm not comfortable with the glass vial or mixed anything of nitro to be just free-flowing. Yet, that's where the key is. Even if you look at the med math on it, so we say we've got, we give 0.4 milligrams or 400 micrograms every five minutes, on average, three to five minutes. Uh, so let's space it out to five, and you take 400 mics and divide it by five. Technically, pending on great absorption sublingual, if we're really good, and if the sprayer didn't hit me in the face, if I'm using the dispenser one. Right. Uh, <clears throat> might have happened a few times. Allegedly. <laughs> Allegedly. I might have been more lightheaded than the patient. But um, if you take 400 micrograms and divide it by five, we're technically giving 80 micrograms, not sustainably, over every one minute. And we're creating this up and down curve. It's effective, drops off. Oh, by the time I realize that it's five more minutes, give it, oh, it's effective and it drops off. So the seesaw battle that we're putting the patient's heart back and forth into drop preload, go back up, drop it down, drop it up. It's not a sustain. And that's where the thought changed going, well, a pump is going to be controlled. It's going to go permanent. And that's about it. Plus, pump approach is way different. IV drips. 40 to 200 micrograms. And I've even had a, this discussion with my partners because I'm like, hey, let's start it at 40. And they're like, no, let's start it at two and titrate up. The biggest part is this is where I started doing the math. I'm like, but yeah, but if we give a tab, we're giving 80 mics per minute. And you're telling me that you want to start at two mics per minute? But, There's a reason but, that it says but, 40. Don't be afraid. If you're comfortable enough with the blood pressure to treat it, that you should not be afraid to be there because if it is going to do something, it's all about the nitro sustained over a long period of time without these seesaw drops left and right. In general, that's been my experience. I have hung it recently, and I am lucky enough to have a stupid pump to set up. Andrew, what do you think? Um, yeah, I agree with most of what you said. Um, I think a lot of... Uh, a lot of medics, especially coming from like the non-critical care, you know, flight environment where they're used to seeing IV nitro, were a little intimidated by the idea of running nitro IV on a pump. You know, uh, there's, I think, some kind of something in our heads that thinks, well, I'm just giving a little sublingual pill. It's not that invasive, you know. But when you think about it, you know, that's a sublingual is 400 mics mm -hmm. at once. And our IV nitro doses are you know, 30 mics a minute up to, you know, 200 on the very high end of it. Um, and once we give that sublingual, can't really take it back. No, there's You know, no once you back. give them that sublingual and you run your next blood pressure and it's 70 systolic, you know, at that point you just start squeezing fluids into them, right? Yeah, chase, um, chase your tail. So, yeah, the nice thing with IV nitro is that 
you know, you start it, titrate it up a little bit till the patient gets relief, and you can leave it there. And if you notice they are getting hypotensive, you can shut it off. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, I, I don't know if I foresee ground EMS having IV nitro anytime soon. It'd be a it'd very be nice, hard sell. It'd be a hard sell, but I think it'd be more beneficial to people. It would be. I, I think it would be very beneficial in many drips. I mean, amiodarone drips and everything else. But yeah. first, we got you know we would have to talk about IV pumps and now adding another piece of equipment. And we know how everybody is about about change. We talk about change, but do we really want it sometimes? Because it um, means that there's in, more crap to go with it. In EMS, there's there's two things we we hate, right? Change and the way things are. Right. <laughs> I just want to be happy in the middle. <laughs> I don't know where the middle is. So going back into nitrates, let's refocus here, everyone. All right. So nitrates. So we talked about that kind of helping with pain. What are some other things that we might see with an acute coronary patient that uh, would be favorable with nitrates? What are some symptoms that you might see? Maybe a little pulmonary edema over there? As far as uh, nitrates taken care of or nitrates contributing helping, to? helping with. Not yeah, hopefully to, pulmonary edema, yeah. Because right. ultimately it's your left ventricle failure. Yeah, especially, you know, that patient with the big old septal wall MI that's developing, mm -hmm. you know, acute pulmonary edema from that, you know, pump failure. Right, yeah. so allow a little more perfusion. great. Another, you know, side effect, really, if they're super hypertensive. If we give a little nitro, drop it down, the heart's a little less stressed. Hopefully, we don't drop it from a crisp 180 to 90, but you yeah, never ideally. know. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think we should always use a drug for its side intended effects. side effect, but right. it is very nice to sort of... You know, it can be favorable. Yeah, yep. kill bird, two, two birds with one stone. Right. It's, it's a great byproduct in the sense of ultimately what we're talking about is you're decreasing the myocardial oxygen demand and how much the heart has to work against the afterload to pump itself out mm -hmm. of death. Right. Right. So we've hit morphine going into fentanyl. We've hit oxygen. And now we've kind of hit nitrates again. I'm going to keep using nitrates until the mortality swings one way or the other. So far, it's kind of a neutral playing field from what the studies are showing. But it's not harmful. So, Yeah, it's not the end of the world. We just have to be judicious. And, and the biggest thing about it as well is a lot of people I've noticed forget it. When you're treating acute coronary syndromes, take serial 12 leads, please. It's a funny thing that once you do some intervention, you might think that necessarily that nitro you gave and the morphine or preferably fentanyl dose that you actually gave made that ST elevation go down. Whereas it could have maybe been, trust me, you're not dilating, dilating past that clot. It's the myocardial oxygen demand, the work of the heart, the demand has gone down so it doesn't feel like it's fighting for its life. Hence, your ST elevation is dropping so it doesn't feel so diseased at that point. Right. Take the serial 12 leads. If you're doing them every five minutes and you got the patient hooked up, your meds are on five, Q5, what, what does it take? Hey, hold still for a second. Hit the 12 lead. We're not back in the days where I need you to pull over the ambulance so I can have a pretty good 12 <laughs> lead or move one lead around on that three lead to get a full. The old life pack five. Yeah, exactly. So life pack three. <laughs> okay, Nurse Nightingale. Yeah, yeah easy, but, easy. Uh, all right, so let's talk about what is known to be helpful and the most paramount part of ACS treatment, aspirin. Aspirin, aspirin, aspirin. So we talk about giving that 
324 of aspirin. Well, everyone says 325. Why do we say 325 milligrams of aspirin? It's not even necessarily a true number. Let's just talk about that. Because we're giving 481 milligram tablets. Math is hard. I will be the first to admit that that means 324. Where'd 325 come from? 325 actually came from the original measurement of aspirin in grains. Um, so whenever that was, probably as long as Alex has been in the EMS. When um, I was using a life pack three. When he was using a life pack three is when we were measuring aspirin in grains, um, which we don't do anymore. So that's kind of where that number came from. FYI, fun fact. Um, so, but the aspirin is shown to be the most helpful. That reduces mortality. That helps get those patients to that intervention, that life-saving intervention they need to, you know, get perfusion back to the heart. With that, what do you guys have with aspirin? Give it early. Give it early. Watch your, you know, um, contraindications and give it early, in my oh. opinion. What are your contraindications? Well, uh, recent bleeds and esophageal ulcers would Neat. be some <laughs> of the easy ones for me. Um, yeah, those are the big ones. That <laughs> I'm, like, those, I'm trying to think. Allergy? Well, yeah, allergy, you know. Uh, Just acetic acid. <laughs> acid, yes. You know, it, it, I, I would say as far as allergy, I would ask my patient, well, what happens when you... Take right. aspirin. Oh, it makes my stomach hurt. Take it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? that's great. I'd rather I'd rather you have a belly ache than <laughs> right. So with the aspirin, though, in fact, so talking back cookbook medicine, three twenty four. We stick with three twenty four. Studies have actually been shown that you can actually oh. range that and drop that. Yeah, range it to one sixty. I've read that as well. One sixty is just, is just as, as effective. Just as effective, if not more. So. Yep. Do I really need to give you the whole kitchen sink, or can I just maybe turn on the garbage disposal and let a little stuff work unclog through? You know, you bit. know, just kind of unclog a little this, little that. Run the water. Run the okay. water. Run the water, and cross your fingers. So, again, follow your protocols. But I know in my protocols on ground, we had that range. So, and you also have to consider things. Okay, you get that patient. You get there. They're short of breath. They have chest pain. Oh no! Which protocol am I going to follow? Crap. Crap. Um, okay, okay, okay. Hmm. Betty Crocker talked about this, but I don't know. So, what what would you guys do? What's the safest thing you can do, do you think? Shortness of breath and that? Yeah, and chest pain. What do came first? What do, came first? What well, does it matter? You're you've got the problem now. I mean you yes, mm -hmm. you can dwindle down and figure it out, but you know, you need a little more diagnostic work. Hey, what's your vitals mm -hmm. like? Uh, right questioning, critical thinking of wide birth opinion of where we start right is this something else that's going on pleuritis blah blah, blah. is there a knife in their chest you yeah, know yeah you know all the simple things, things. Right. and then ultimately we end up at the what's your 12 lead say and is this truly cardiac related or have you had bad pneumonia and this and that and the other thing right. for a few days all part of a clinician we've got to figure out what the problem is don't just throw the kitchen sink because you can right Hardest thing to do sometimes is not, not intervene. Not doing anything. Yeah. Not intervene. Just turn, your, turn all your patients into a chemistry project. Yes. Just give them, give them all I the drugs. If I give them the whole drug box, something will happen. You're right. Something will happen. But think, of it, think of it this way. One of the easiest ways that I was able to approach it with some of my medic students in the past was um, I do all the sound engineering for my band. If you need to fix something, you can f turn 50 knobs on a mixer board. And you might fix it. You just don't know which knob fixed the problem. Right. So go step by step, methodically figuring out in a rather fast manner, so you don't take your complete day to figure out what's wrong with the patient. Go step by step, figuring out stuff because if you do too many things or throw too many drugs at them, you don't know what actually ended up working for them. 
Right. So following what we're doing, watching what we're doing, being methodical, and not just throwing what we have at them. So aspirin itself, we're talking about aspirin. Why is it so helpful? So aspirin is actually um, inhibiting part of that clotting cascade, which I will not get into and bore you to death so you don't accidentally run your car off the road. But, you know, getting in there and preventing um, clots from forming together, those platelets from sticking together. We want those platelets to keep moving through the bloodstream because they stick together, they stick to where the clot is. We're going to have less flow to the heart and we're just going to cause bigger issues down the road. So giving that aspirin, um, you know, part of a daily regimen, of course, prevents that from happening, hopefully. Um, but in an acute setting, prevents it from getting worse again, hopefully. But this is shown to be the most helpful time and time again. And I'm not going to sit here and talk about, you know, glycoproteins 2B, 3A inhibitors and all of that. We can. But let's just focus on what we're doing right now for all intensive purposes. And to wrap up, so... Um, Mona Fona. So again, Fona fentanyl is the replacement for morphine in there. That's kind of what we're looking at as the new standard. Oxygen used judiciously, that oxygenation goal, SpO2 goal of 94%. But look at your patient. Are they a COPD or maybe they don't need 94%. So maybe 90% is okay. Um, then, which of course, there's a lot of factors into anything. We have to look at the patient as a whole. Um, nitrates may be helpful, maybe not helpful. Research is showing that it at least treats the symptoms at the very least. So do what you can within your protocols for that. And then aspirin, again, the gold standard. If you can only get one thing before you get to the hospital and that quick transport, give them that aspirin. Uh, maybe they took one at home, give them the last one, you know, to get them to that 160. Give them the last three if you think they need the 324. Um, kind of make those calls. Give them that drug that they need to get to that intervention because the goal is to get them to the cath lab, get perfusion back to the heart, and get them home. Yeah. Just remember, muscle is important. Time is muscle. Let's not forget that overall. Thank you guys for uh, joining us for another Stand Up 24 podcast, or should we say our second one. Uh, hopefully you guys will join us for more. Andrew, thank you so much. Zane, thank you so much for all the wonderful research. Great job. And uh, we'll keep pushing forward and bring you guys some more titillating stuff. Titillating. To add on real quick, if any of you are ever interested in any of the research we're talking about presenting, by all means, fact check us and use it for your own use for personal growth for your departments. Um, just shoot us an email at standup24 at gmail.com and we will send you what we've got. And if we said something wrong, please, please call us out on it. Let's all learn together. Like I said, thanks for listening. Thanks.